it's funny because I hear people talking about like, oh, COVID really highlighted the need for digital. And I'm like, well, everybody kind of knew that was where it was. There was no secret that everything was going digital before that. To banking on digital growth with James Robert Lay, who believes there is no better time than now to educate and empower financial brands to gain a fresh perspective around future growth opportunities. That's why today's episode is part of the New Starts Now series, brought to you by Nimbus, who offers a complete set of tech, tools, and services, all designed and engineered to empower you and your financial brand to maximize your future growth potential. Greetings and hello, I am James Robert Lay and welcome to the 159th episode of the Banking on Digital Growth podcast. Today's episode is part of the New Starts Now series and I'm excited to welcome back my friend Jeffrey Kendall to the show. Jeffrey is the chairman and CEO at Nimbus, helping financial brands delight their members and customers with best-in-class digital banking solutions. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. It is so good to have you back on today. It is always great to talk to you. Always such a fun time for me and really, really looking forward to it. Thanks, James Robert. We've already been having fun before we hit record. We probably just should have just hit record and just started talking because it is a conversation today. Before we get into looking at, you know, where we've been as an industry over the, we'll call it the last couple of years to start the decade to where we can go maybe over the next three to get us kind of like the halfway point. Um, I always want to start off on a positive note. What's good for you personally, professionally to, to start the year here? Yeah, well, we're, we're getting ready as a company to close out the, the fiscal year, and it's been a fantastic year for growth for us. So we're hugely appreciative to the, the financial services industry, our partners, our friends, our supporters in the industry, most importantly, our customers, uh, and, and then also our team. But we've had tremendous growth, uh, and, and that translates into, you know, when we grow, it's because our customers are growing, and that's the most important thing. And well, I'm excited. I'm excited for the growth. I'm excited for all the progress that you've made together as a team, as an organization, you know, collaborating with so many um, in, in helping and in, in really leveraging uh, the, the human side of this, because at the end of the day, it's all about people. This is the technologies facilitating new opportunities. And, and speaking about technology, I want to hop into the DeLoreans of our minds. I want to go back in time for a bit, uh, two years, uh, kind of the start of this this decade. And I, and I honestly, I feel like the production team should probably play some like Back to the Future theme music as a transition. Um, speaking of, you know when? Do you know when Back to the Future? Do you know when it came out? Some quick quick trivia. I'm gonna say 1985. Man, 84, bing. 85. 85. So this is 85. So it's it's coming up because that'll be our horizon line for the conversation. 2025. Back to the Future is approaching 40 years. And it's hard to believe. I mean, 1985 was a great year for 80s movies. The Goonies came out that year. Breakfast Club, Teen Wolf. I mean, seriously, it was a it was a big year for like the 80s, 80s movies for sure. So, I remember being a kid in the theater going to see Back to the Future for the very first time. I remember Back to the Future came out, and it was also, if I recall correctly, when the U2 Rattle and Hum promo came out. 
uh, for that movie was the pre the, that was the preview playing it the Back to the Future movie, which is wild. But. Well, what's wild is my kids. You know, we just turned them on to Back to the Future, and they're loving it. Uh, this past Halloween, my oldest Ludwig, he was Marty McFly. Um, I mean, he had the red vest and everything going on. He bought like a Lego uh, DeLorean that he wanted to build. So, I mean, he's all into this whole Back to the Future theme. With that context in mind, going back to, back in time to 2020 and looking back to this point today, what do you feel have been the biggest wins for financial brands to start this new decade when it comes to maximizing their digital growth. What success stories have you heard here? I think the biggest thing is probably just the willingness of leadership teams at financial institutions to sort of increase the bets that they're putting on digital. Mm. I think it, you know, it's funny because I hear people talking about like, Oh, COVID really highlighted the need for digital. And I'm like, well, everybody kind of knew that was where it was. There was no secret that everything was going digital before that. It's not like everybody just woke up in an aha moment, but what it did do is it freed up a lot of investment and it freed up the ability to get resources and the ability to go um, to, to, to really make the sort of financial commitments that banks need to, to advance here. And I think you're seeing the benefits of that now um, that people are starting to roll out. Some of those things that they invested in are now coming into production and uh, it, it's, it's pretty interesting to see. It's 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 was having the courage to maybe plant some seeds early on, take care of those seeds, water them, nurture, and now they're starting to produce some fruit. If you can think back, maybe just for yourself and maybe what you've heard from others too, what have been some of the greatest lessons that have been learned along the way? What what can we take from the experience? Because I think experience can often be one of the greatest teachers of us all. Yeah, I think for me, it's, it comes down to people really understanding what the customer journey is in digital and understanding how different sort of episodes in how people become a new customer of a bank or a credit union is sort of where I think what got the most focus. So people, you know, uh, started investing in account opening, onboarding, sort of that initial, how do I draw people in? How do I bring them in? Um because there were a lot of new loans that needed to be, you know, distributed mortgages are at, a, at an all time high. So that, you know, the focus and the attention on those products that were maybe less efficient digitally sort of got the initial attention. And I think you're starting to see the roll out of that. Yeah, it's and, and I think we'll continue to see some growth there, both what I would call pre-conversion as well as post-conversion, because we can spend all this time and effort and energy acquiring new accounts, but then we also just be, we must be mindful on, on the retention side to make sure that it's not almost like a, a net zero. It's that we're actually you know retaining, growing that share of wallet, building that relationship. If you could go back into your mind, knowing what you know now uh, and where we've been over the last couple of years, um, it's December of 2020. What would you do differently knowing what you know now, if you could do it again? <laughs> well, aside from uh, keeping my portfolio heavily vested in the right stocks, <laughs> it, it totally surprised everybody. Um, you know, for me, it, I, don't, I don't know that there's anything I'd do differently. Um, honestly, I think that what we did was it sort of allowed people to change their focus, yes. and shift their focus on maybe how we work. And 
I'll take it a little bit away from what, what goes on with just banks or fintechs or, or sort of companies like that. But I think what, what I'm sort of most impressed that's come out of the past two years has been people are really thinking about what it means to have work-life balance, what it means to work in a different way. And I think that's a very powerful uh, trend in thinking about we can work remote, we can be productive remotely. Um, I think that's going to carry forward into the next 10 years. And it was it would have never happened without an accelerant uh, like what we've seen over the past two years. So I think that's been the biggest driver. And then people working remotely, I think, gives you more courage to keep investing in digital uh, because when you're sort of living it every day as a customer and as a consumer, it makes more sense and, and drives people to invest. So that, I think, is is probably the biggest long-term effect that we'll see out of what's happened. It's interesting you bring up the idea of work-life balance. I was just doing some writing about this for a financial brand that I'm coaching. And one of the things I'm, I'm, I was more speaking towards was work-life integration. It's almost like previously we would, we would kind of have like the work self and then the at-home personal self. But now we've almost been able to blend both of them together and and that opens up new opportunities for growth. What are you seeing from more of a talent play and maybe a talent pool for financial brands to look beyond just say the the quote unquote local market for talent and really it expands nationally, maybe even internationally. Where might there be some opportunities to to look to acquire talent in just different ways? Well, it's interesting. So you know, we, I, I, I put on the Nimbus journey roughly 12, 14 months ago. And when I came in, we had 150 staff and now we've grown to, I think today we're at 480, 490 uh, folks. And that growth of adding over 300 people in 12 months, yeah, I don't, I don't think it would have been possible had we not been in the middle of this quote unquote, great resignation. Right. I think the ability to go acquire, train and onboard new people has been really, really accelerated. And we benefited from that during the pandemic because people were re-examining their options. Mm. People were rethinking about what it means to, do I wanna go back to the office? Do I wanna work? Um, so for us, it was a huge benefit because you, you know adding that many people in a short amount of time is no small feat. Um, and so for us, the way that we looked at it is we weren't worried about our people leaving. We were, we were sort of, how do we take advantage of all these people re-examining that? Right. Um, so, you know, and, and, but I think there's a lot of companies who maybe haven't caught up to the new culture shift of where people are going that are going to continue to lose talent. Yep. Uh, I would recommend like, you know, change your policies for your work, you know, your remote work strategy and make sure you really understand what it's going to take to make your business thrive. And then if you can go more remote, take advantage of that and use that as a retention tool and a, and a you know, attraction tool for new talent. Something that I'm seeing from financial brands that I've been coaching over the last 12 months specifically, they've they've started to shift that focus. There's been there's one organization in particularly in their marketing department. They, they've literally turned over the over the entire marketing department, and now what they're they're doing is they're looking for talent beyond just the local market to where remote is an option. I'm like, well, yes, because you've got you've got you got so many more who's that can be the how to the problems that you have. And you almost get an exponentiality out of that. We're speaking a little bit about, um, you know, not just work-life balance, work-life integration, 
the the new world of collaboration. If you look back over the past couple of years, any any surprising trends or patterns that maybe made you just stop, pause, and say, "Hmm, that's that's interesting." I didn't, I never really thought about that before. You know, in terms of surprising, it's surprising me how many business leaders are sort of saying that people have to come back to the office or that there's this big push to come back to the office. Uh, I was actually having a conversation with the, with a candidate to join our company yesterday. And my, my point of view on this is CEOs and C-level executives need to be really thoughtful about what that policy is, because if they start pushing that you have to come back into the, now there's customer facing roles. There's just of course. things have to be done in person, but if it can be done remotely and you're insisting on it, from a person uh, in-person perspective, I think what you're signaling out to your company is that you don't trust them. Yeah. And I think what you're signaling is saying like, hey, I saw that you could be pro- really, really productive during the pandemic and we could grow and there were ways to get through these, you know, through this, this new way of working. But ultimately at the end of the day, I still want to know that you're here, that you're working, that you're doing those things. And some people will claim it's that, that the benefit is really collaboration, but really, you know, we find lots of ways to collaborate when we're still remote. I, I think it's an excuse. And um, if I was joining a new company and there was somebody insisting on being in person, I'd be like, you don't have your business together then. I, I re- it requires you be in person. I, I remember on a, on a podcast, uh, maybe it was six months ago, I, I started to speak against this idea as things started to quote unquote go back, people started to go back in person, how there is almost even a, a quote unquote hidden cost, if you will, of going in person, because now you have all of the interruptions, the, the phone calls, the people walking in, and it's just, a, it's, a, it's, it's almost like the pendulum swung one way. Now it's starting to swing back the other way. I think we'll find something here in the middle, but great point about trust, um, and it's something that that would be my aha moment coming out of this whole experience and really just this learning is the EX, the employee experience will have a direct impact on the human experience that can be delivered through a digital experience. In 2019, I wrote DX plus HX equals growth, digital experience plus the human experience. But then I saw specifically 2020, 2021, how important the EX is going to be because change is, is really starting to pick up. And, and COVID, I think, was a preview of, of, of some of the massive changes and transformations we're going to experience. What's your take on that, of just, you know, positive employee experience and how that impacts almost every other area of the organization? Well, I think it's it's brought to the forefront this concept of when does our work life end and when does our personal life begin? And I like the idea that you're you're going towards it. It's really about how does it integrate and how does it blend? Because there's not a there's not a separation anymore, mm. right? We don't work nine to five anymore, right? Even if you're in a nine to five jobs. I mean, we're still checking emails. We're taking calls. We're doing stuff. Some, some people late into the evening and weekends. And, and what I think I'm sort of happy about is that people have sort of woken up and going like, wait a minute, do I really need to work 80 hour weeks? And I love this concept of people coming back and going, hold on, we're not going to glorify this workaholic sort of perspective that's been rewarded for the past 
50 years. Right. You can still be productive, but not have to be completely dedicated to your work life. That's not who you are. And I really try to tell my, my team, it's like, Hey, we love this company. We love what we're doing. We love our customers, but this is not who we are. Right. Don't tie your identity to who, who your job is. And, and, and that sort of thing. You need to have more, you know, broader personal satisfaction than just uh, what you're doing at work. And uh, I think that that coming out in society, I think even like there was a new law proposed or passed in Portugal, making it illegal for companies to email their employees off hours. Now, I think that's, that's, that's a, that's a plan fraught with (laughs) how do you manage that? That might not be possible. And sometimes I want to be at nine o'clock at night emailing because maybe I didn't go to work till noon. That's okay. Like, let me be flexible with my hours and I'll do that. But um, it just means that the world is waking up going, hold on, the way that we work and what we expect out of ourselves needs to change. Yeah, it's a great point. I even think about my own personal habits here. Like my brain does not turn on till 11 o'clock at night. It just, it just doesn't. I get my, honestly, my best, deepest thinking work done between probably the hours of 11 and two, 11 to three. And I, I know it's, it's, it's weird. I'm just, that's just how my mind works. It's always worked that way. And I, and I used to have a lot of guilt from it, but then that's just who I am. That's how my brain works. And I actually started going back and looking at like, you know, Thomas Edison, like he, they, he kind of had this weird work pattern of just these off odd hours. And so I just literally build my day around that. But back to your point of email, a little personal hack here is I actually use schedule to send. So I might reply, but so that someone's like, what's this weirdo doing at, you know, two 30 in the morning, replying to emails, I'll just schedule to send out at eight, eight 30 the next morning, because it is, it is that flexibility to allow us to work within our own kind of what I call you unique growth ability um, in in our own unique space because we're all individuals here working collectively and collaboratively towards something better. But I, I like your point that we need that idea of balance. Today's episode of Banking on Digital Growth is brought to you by Nimbus, who believes in creating even better financial services for all. Better access, better experiences, better value, all while supporting the entire customer journey. And how do they do this? Offering end-to-end niche banking solutions that you can buy or build. Providing accountability beyond the technology. And prioritizing impactful, intentional innovation instead of chasing features. Ready to transform what is and create what's next? Learn more at Nimbus.com. Well, I like the idea. You, you just brought up this idea of a hack. One of the things that I found really successful is if you tell your teams like, Hey, I might send you an email or a text on the weekend. I don't expect a response. I'm doing it because it's top of my mind right now. But if I send it, I don't want you to stress out that, Hey, I owe Jeffrey a response right at that time. And, and I also, as a leader, I'm trying to be better about yes. using things like schedule to send because it's not fair to someone to, you know, if Larry on my team is getting emails from me at 10 o'clock on a Saturday, even if I tell him like, Hey, don't worry about it. I don't want a response. It still like sends off that ping in our brain of like, Oh, I got something else I got to take care of. So I try to be better about that, but I also just try to be really open with our teams about what the expectation is and responding. I've gone super extreme on this front personally. Once again, I think you, you lead by example on this. And so I, I took email off my phone. 
I took social media off my phone. I took the internet browser off my phone. And so essentially I have a dumb smartphone because a lot of it was just my own personal behaviors. And I'll even go ahead and say it addictions, if you will. And so I had to change my environment to work for me. Now, every now and then I'll go and steal Delina's phone and, you know, <laughs> hop on and, and might Google something. But I mean, it. but it, it's been a forcing function that has kept me honest because otherwise I'll just fall back into the kind of like these old patterns and old behaviors, which is what I was saying, you know, going back six months ago, once we start going back to the way things were before, I have a feeling that it's easy to slip back into this, what I call the cave of complacency, that level of comfort where it, it creates a, a, a pseudo sense of security. But in reality, it's a very dangerous place to be. If, if we look out into the future now, let's just say over the next three years to get us to that 40 year anniversary of back to the future, it's 2025, looking from 2025 back to, to 2022, what do you feel are the biggest opportunities available for financial brands, maybe even fintechs collaboratively here to create, to capture? What would those be? Yeah, I think that everything's going to, you know, no surprise on this answer. It's going to, banks and credit unions are going to wake up to how they use digital to acquire new customers and sell new products. And that is, everybody has talked about that for years, but I think from the vendor community, from the technical community, what has dominated has been self-service tools. So if you go back to 2010 to 2020, everybody talked about mobile, 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 but mobile was really it's check your balances, pay a bill. It was transacting. It was doing, uh, John Jenkins, who's a president of Arcuso, coined this term, I think, one time. I love using it. It's uh, doing the, the, your financial chores. That was what digital was about. It was right. just, just got to get stuff done. And now, you know, because of the pandemic, we've started talking about digital onboarding, digital acquisition, client acquisition, and growing the footprint. And I think the next wave is going to be even more exciting about how do we deliver new products and services that are digital through those channels that banks can actually monetize. So it's going, you know, we're working with a number of digital focused brands that Yes, they have a debit card. Yes, they have deposits. Yes, they have lending, those sorts of things. But you're starting to see people going, you know what? We should provide that niche group of small businesses with advisory services, mm. right? What if, what if we could charge $10 per month for access to a CFO for small businesses? That somebody who knows how to deal with complex tax questions and you can you know, phone a friend when you have a, a, a question. Those are the services that banks and credit unions actually are starting to have opportunities of saying, here's a new product or service. It's not traditionally what we would think of as a regulated product from a bank or credit union, but it helps the lives of the consumer they're trying to serve and create stickier relationships. I think for the next three to seven years, that's going to be the focus and where the the people who do digital right and win will be focused on those things. I was just having this conversation with the CFO yesterday because of this whole interchange and what Ally has done and what Cap One is doing. And it's almost kind of putting some downward pressure on some credit unions. You know, they looked at like 80% of their revenue has the potential to just, just disappear because it's, it's that idea of non-interest income coming from uh, NSFs and, I'm like, well, 
the back to your point, this idea of advisory charge for that. It's an expertise that we bring. And I almost think it's like we fail to realize the value that that expertise can bring to provide clarity, to provide even what I would say is, is, is hope. And, you know, it's interesting, even Wells Fargo, almost Wells Fargo, I feel like they stole from banking on digital growth this idea that people need help and hope. They had a whole positioning campaign at the, to end uh, 2021 around that. But hope alone is just one part of the equation. Then there's also the the helping side of that as well. On the idea of hope, I'm curious, what are you just most hopeful about when you look out at the macro level here at, at a large scale over the next three years to get us to 2025? You know, for me, I'd, I'd really like to see this debate of fintechs. Are they friend or foes? I, I'm getting tired of that debate. You and I me both. <laughs> we're just, you know, I think people who sort of, number one, the people who start those debates are, are the vendor community. Let's be honest. It's, it's the, it's the media and vendor community. It's not within the banks themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, but I think there's an opportunity here for banks to stop being afraid of external factors and to start embracing how they can take advantage of them. And that's just a mindset, right? If I see something that's changing the way that my consumers behave, don't panic and be like, oh my gosh, we need to, you know, step up this or shut down branches or it's like, look inside. Why is that changing? What's what's going on that's making people, you know, behave in this different way and then take advantage and say, how can I help? Yes. That's, that's, that's the way to draft off of a a dynamic change going on in the market. And I think uh, we just tend not to, as people, not just bankers or whatever, it's probably an industry, any industry, um, but that the innovative mindset says, how do I leverage it versus fight against it? It's that idea. What I would say is, is you kind of mentioned the human behavior, but maybe bringing more anthropology, psychology, sociology into the mix of these conversations, because that that's the core essence of it all. I, I know that there are some financial brands who are bringing CBOs, chief behavioral uh, officers into the mix to really facilitate some of this internally. What about dangers? Um, things just to be aware of. I think you mentioned this. You know the the the, the tired fintech friend or foe. It's that's that's so last decade. Um, let's let's look, but real practically, dangers. What are the dangers that we need to be aware of that could could cause some some issues, heartburn, heartache? Well, this is going to be a super unpopular opinion, <laughs> but. Um, I would say for the banking community, understand what your strategy is around crypto mm. and, and currency in that way. But And I don't mean understand like that everyone needs a strategy. Everyone doesn't need a crypto strategy. And I think everybody, there's a lot of vendor activity in the market saying every, every bank needs to offer crypto. I think what we're seeing right now is if you're a community bank or credit union, think this through. Do you really want your members putting their assets and their wealth into crypto if they don't understand it or don't have the, um, you know, aren't in a financial position to take the swings of a very volatile investment vehicle? Yes. And I am very much a free market <laughs> sort of, you know, I believe in letting the free market do what it do what it does, but I think it's irresponsible of us 
to go out and have this position of like, everybody should be in Bitcoin. No, they shouldn't. You know what? Last week told us, no, they should not, because some people can't take a 20% swing in their in their net worth. And if you're if you don't have much money and you're putting it into Bitcoin with the hopes of getting rich quick, because it's a bet, it's a it's gambling, don't be confused, you know, then then I think you as a you as a credit union or bank are probably facilitating some behavior that's probably not good for your customers. And I think we just uh, I don't know how it's going to win. I'm not somebody who's going to bet against crypto or bet against NFT, but you better do it responsibly. Yes. And you better do it in a way that is there to assist your customers, not put them in a position where they can get into financial hurt. That's a great point. And, and once again, it comes back to putting people at the center of, of, of our thinking, the center of our, our doing. I even think, you know, real, real practically here, an opportunity would be, how, do we even know? Does a bank or a credit union even know how much is exiting from the deposit side of the balance sheet and going into something like a Coinbase? I mean, it's super easy to find out, like just run an analysis and see, you know, over the last 90 days, 180 days, you know, 365 days, how much has moved from, you know, your side over into like a Coinbase or any of these other crypto exchanges. It'll be really telling of what, those behaviors are and then maybe offer some maybe education around it because I, I think a lot of people are there's a lot of hype around this once again i'm not betting against it i think like we're in the early days of the internet it's like 1994 1995 1996 we're going to need to fill this out get a little bit more clarity but we got to protect people too from making decisions that could end up having very negative long-term implications to their financial health, to their financial well-being. What do you think? I totally agree. And, and this is, you know, a topic that's near and dear to my heart is that I think still financial institutions aren't really, they're not benefiting from the power of the data that they have. Number one, to your point, which is they should know, right? That should be something you should be able to say, uh, you know, out of the one and a half billion in deposits we had last, you know, quarter, 100 million went to Coinbase or, you know, 50 million went to Robinhood. You should be able to have some point of view on that piece of it. And then at an individual account level, you could conceivably provide investment advice to somebody who, you know, maybe they only get have $2,000 in their account, but they just made a thousand dollar deposit to Coinbase. Oof. You know, maybe send an alert, be like, Hey, you know, like we can, we can offer other safe investment vehicles if you're, you know, trying to figure out a way to maximize your money and things like that. But um, there, there was recently a, a new fintech that came out that targeted a specific ethnic community with Bitcoin investing. And I really admire the idea of inclusivity and making sure that, you know, everybody is educated. But it was like this wholesale message of like, everybody should be in crypto. And I'm like, no, not everybody should be in crypto. That's right. just flat out. I believe that. But um, you got to balance your risk with your, you know, with your means. There's a, there's a great narrative that was told a few years ago. I used to use it in workshops of how to basically personifies the confusion around investing. It was from Wealthfront and it was this younger guy. He's kind of like walking through life and he has all of these messages being bombarded at him of like, it's, it really is the ultimate confusion. It's like, what do I do? And I think that comes back to the more that we can simplify, the more that we can provide clarity 
and, and, and a path forward through all of this noise, the better off people will be getting to the other side, whatever that means to them, because everyone's on a different journey. Everyone has different goals and aspirations. I even think, I don't know, maybe that's, that's another opportunity. I know we're riffing at this point, but it's always fun just to kind of like just blue skies, blue sky stuff, helping people get clear about what their goals in life are to begin with in the first place. I've seen some research on the subject because we've looked into it. It's like 98% of Americans really have never sat down and written out what they want their life to look like to begin with. And so if we can maybe provide not a how to buy a house workshop, but just you know, like, let's just sit you down. Let's you look out, you know, three years, five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years and start writing down what you want that future reality to look like. Maybe that could be an opportunity there. And then, hey, we're going to provide that level of coaching, that level of accountability financially to support you for whatever that could be. I don't know. What, what's your, what's your I, take? I think it's a great idea. I mean, how many times do you sat around a boardroom and, you know, sort of talked and discussed and debated the importance of a strategic plan for the company, but you need a strategic plan for your life. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that's actually one of my friends is, uh, he was telling me that he and his spouse did a, a really interesting workshop that was all around strategic planning for your marriage. Mm. And sort of where, do, you know, we've been married five years. Where do we want to be in 20 years as a married couple? What do we need to do to get there? And I thought that's a pretty clever way of thinking about uh, being intentional about your your life and it's surprising it, it's it surprises me how many of us don't have strategic plans for our lives there it is part of the book series banking on you i like that that's a good one it, i'm telling you man like it's going to come out of this conversation we're going to be able to look I'll back right james robert lake just throw that in there <laughs> three, three years from now we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna have that one let's get real practical this is it's always so much fun uh riffing with you on this Going forward, let's just say over the next 90 to 180 days, pulling in a little bit closer, what would you recommend the next step be for a financial brand to continue to move forward, to continue to make progress along their digital growth journey? Something small that they can commit to. It's not overwhelming, but it will give them some momentum going forward to put some wind in the cells and, and build their level of confidence. You know, for us, uh, one of the things that we do a lot of, and I think it always is helpful, even if someone decides not to go forward with the project, but is doing some data analytics around what's the art of the possible in your market. Mm. About, you know, maybe some brainstorming around are there specific segments or groups or niches of people that we can serve and what types of products and services would, would help them out more. And whether that's identifying, you know, recently graduated students that need help with student loans or, you know, uh, gig economy workers that want to put a down payment on a house, you know, just identifying some group of people and something that you could do to help them out doing the exercise and getting some data through partners. Um, and that partner could be someone like you, that partner could be someone like Nimbus uh, Labs and, and what we do. But I think it's really just sort of sitting down and saying, hey, if I got an extra 
$250,000 as a banker to go invest next year to grow, what would I bet on? What would I put it in? Because uh, I, I don't think people think about their initiatives enough like, hey, this is a this is a bet that we're making in a, in a strategic play. No, I agree with you on that. And I think it's a really good approach. It's, it's really practical. It's something that someone can 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 move forward with. Um, and it's small, it's measurable, and it's meaningful. If someone wants to continue the dialogue, the discussion that we started here, because to me, it, like this is this is where all growth begins. It, it just begins with dialogue. It begins with discourse. It begins with ideation. And we've got a lot of ideas that have come out from where we've been, where we're at, where we could grow next. What's the best way that someone could reach out, connect with you, say hello? Yeah, absolutely. LinkedIn is definitely the the easiest way to contact to contact me or Jay Kendall at Nimbus.com. The one thing I would say is, is, you know, what we are trying to do is be a different type of tech provider. In all of our conversations with our customers, we don't start with the technology. We start with what is it that you're trying to do? Mm -hmm. What is that roadmap? What is that growth path that you're on? What's the ambition for your bank or credit union? And what do you hope to provide? And then use technology to fill in the gaps, not make technology an end in itself. And I really want to encourage the community out there to, you know, we're not the only people that think like that, by the way, there's lots of good, you know, providers and, and partners in the, in the uh, space that can do that, but reach out to people and have a, have a thoughtful conversation and then decide what you're going to do from a tech perspective, but don't put the other one before the, before the, you know, before that. Well, it's really three steps. It's insights to ideation, to transformation. And one informs the next. So three steps, insights lead to ideation, ideation leads to transformation, and it's through transformation that leads to continued future growth. Jeffrey, this has been a lot of fun. Always, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining me on another episode of Banking on Digital Growth. Appreciate it, James Robert. As always, and until next time, be well, do good, and make your bed. Thank you for listening to another episode of Banking on Digital Growth with James Robert Lay, brought to you by Nimbus, who is on a mission to bring the people, process, and technology together to create new routes to growth for financial brands and enable them to deliver outcomes. To learn more about how you can collaborate with Nimbus to maximize your future digital growth potential, visit www.nimbus.com. Until next time, be well and do good.